Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And we're very lucky today to welcome Patrick Ryan. He's a cult mediation specialist. He is the head of the TMX, an organisation of ex-members of Transcendental Meditation. He's worked for the International Cultic Studies Association and he's co-author of the Ethical Standards for Thought Reform Consultants, basically a set of standards for how to help people out of harmful groups. I know uh, Pat from the cult101.com website because uh, Pat, you send me, a, a, well, you send lots of people who are mm. on your mailing list, um, lots of really in, uh, interesting and useful information. Um, and also, you're a name that was dropped by Jilly Jenkinson when we interviewed her as someone we should speak to about exit counselling. So it's a real pleasure to welcome you on the show today. Welcome, Pat. It's my pleasure. I'm here to yeah. help in any way I can. <laughs> Great. So um, like many of us in this space, me included, you've had your own experience with um, uh, what you came to believe was a harmful group, mm -hmm. uh, Transcendental Meditation. Uh, in fact, you went to the Maharishi International University. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what attracted you to this group in the first place? Yeah, so this is a very long time ago for me. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm 64, and this adventure started when I was 17 right. in, high, in high school. And so that was in 1975. Um, TM was taught in the public school systems under a, a experimental program in New Jersey, California, and in Kansas. And TM at that time looked very um, middle of the road. It was very cleaned up. It was not, uh, didn't have really a bad reputation. Um, it was the seventies were the middle of the human potential movement. Yeah. And so things that would help us expand our abilities um, were very popular. So my high school, I grew up in Florida, um, had a TM club. <clears throat> One of the teachers at the school was uh, into TM. I had neighbors who were into TM. It was a very popular thing. I also yeah. wrote for my high school newspaper and for the local paper. And in 1975, Maharishi Mashyogi appeared on the Merv Griffin show. And so the editor asked me to go write a story about this because when Mari, she appeared on the Merv Griffin show, uh, a talk show at that time, Clint Eastwood, Mary Tyler Moore, um, Burt Reynolds, Grandma Walton, uh, all these stars were on and they had all, they all practiced TM. Sure. So, uh, and in that show, they talked about the effects of meditation on lowering blood pressure and things like that. And so the town I lived in, St. Petersburg, uh, had a, a more older population and the idea of 
lowering blood pressure was a very popular thing. Mm -hmm. So I went to write the story and I went in and the, the guy who was giving the lecture actually uh, taught athletes how to meditate. And the, the Philadelphia Phillies, I live in Philly now, they spring train in St. Peter, St. Clearwater, right next to St. Mm -hmm. Petersburg. And so, so there was athletes in this course. And so as a young 17 year old man, it was, I just had turned 17. Um, it was sort of exciting. Um, and, uh, so I ended up learning the practice. Um, and soon after I, I learned, I, I, I found it, you know, it, it was it was exciting. It was, it was kind of interesting and ironic. And one day I learned it on a Saturday and as soon as I learned, I left to go hunting with my father, deer hunting. <laughs> and so I hunted all that Saturday and next and Sunday and had to be back at the center for the second day class. So that mm. was it's a funny juxtaposition <laughs> yeah. of going down this vegetarian Hindu path. <laughs> the, uh, so about four months after I learned the teachers at the local center, who most of them were in their 20, 20s and 30s, encouraged me to go on an advanced course because I had been volunteering. Right. And uh, that course was taught by Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence okay. Bruns. Uh, uh, so if you know any Beatles music, uh, the song Dear Prudence, Won't You Come Out and Play, yeah. was written, written about her. Wow. Uh, so, so she was in India and she was uh, said she was going to go into her meditation cave or her room and meditate until she got enlightened. And uh, the Beatles set, wrote the song, Dear Prudence, Won't You Come Out and Play. It's a brand wow. new day. So uh, she encouraged people to go to this new university, the Maharishi International University. And uh, I remember coming back from this course and after a week and telling my parents that's where I was going. And, uh, <laughs> you know, my dad grew up in South Dakota, uh, rode a horse to school every day and was a very high ranking military guy. Uh, and it's like, OK, now, now where is his son going off to? But he was smart in that he realized that if he didn't go along with my program, that I would just do it anyway and, and cut them off in essence. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, that's how I sort of got involved. I, I you know, graduated from high school and loaded up my VW and drove from Florida to Iowa, where the university was. And uh, I was there for five years. Well, so um, listening to some of your other um, talks about this, you, you, it's a, it's a, a bona fide university, isn't it? It's, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's got, you know, proper courses. It's not, it's not some sort of out of the way backwater somewhere it's a proper university doing proper courses but there's, there's this other thing attached which is this tm stuff yeah so i i think that we you're correct in everything that you've said sure so just a little bit of a segue in, in my, from my perspective, groups change from time to time and place to place and okay. people change from time to time and place to place. And what we look at is the interaction of a particular person, in this case, me, at a particular life cycle, place in this group's life. And yeah. that interaction can create this thing I call a cultic dynamic. Mm -hmm. So at the time, the university is slightly different than, or you know, in some ways, a lot different than it was when I attended. But yes, it was a regular university accredited through the PhD level. Mm. Um, it taught in a very unique way um, for the time. And that is that you only took one course at a time. So my physics class was taught by a professor from CERN in Switzerland. My finance course was taught by a professor that came from Harvard for, for a month. 
and it was like that. So they could mm -hmm. bring in, there was a core faculty, but they could bring in uh, professors that were very well respected from around the world because we're just teaching one class at a time. So there was many majors, so there was many things going on, mm -hmm. but I, the major I was in, um, they could bring in these well-known, well-respected uh, professors. And then we studied just that subject for one month. So okay. basically classes were from maybe 9.30 in the morning to 3.30, 4 o'clock. And then again, um, classes were also on Saturdays. So there was this element of that was normal. Yeah. Um, uh, then the, the, there was other element that after about two months of normal class work, yeah. you um, would have what was called a forest academy. And the idea was you were theoretically supposed to be out in the forest, but you weren't. You were in your dorm room. But this was the time when you focused on Maharishi's teachings. Okay. And that was seven days a week from like 930 in the morning till 930 at night. Okay. Uh, and in that time, you increased the amount of meditation significantly. You're assigned a buddy, someone who was always with you. You didn't go to the bathroom alone, walk you know, to go for walks, eat. You're always with a buddy. You weren't supposed to write letters, call home, do those things, just to focus and absorb into Maharishi's knowledge. And okay. so, so the, it was these two things. There's academics, yeah. and the academics were taught in the light of Maharishi's ideas. Okay. So if we were studying, let's say, psychology, it would be psychology, and then how Maharishi's teachings fix psychology. <laughs> here's what's wrong with it, and here's how we can fix it. So it was about 90% normal and 10% his ideas. So what's the, um, the, the, the meditation stuff? Could you? So, so this is an area that I'm personally really interested in because it's very alien to my background. So as an ex-Jehovah's Witness, there is nothing like that at all. You know, it's very, it's all very kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, there's nothing exotic in it. There's no meditation. There's no hypnosis. So could you explain a little bit about what that was like? What, what are you doing during meditation? So in, in, in the TM uh, method of meditation involves the use of a, a mantra or a word, a sound. Uh, that one repeats mentally um, while they're meditating. That's what meditation is. So uh, the uniqueness of the TM approach is that there, it doesn't involve concentration, contemplation. It doesn't involve focusing. It's just that one thinks a thought. Yeah. In this case, the old sound, mine was Ima. Uh, and you think it, and then you think it, and you think it. And then when you're aware you're not thinking it, you think it again. So you might think it, think it, think it, think it, think it. And then all of a sudden you're thinking about, I want to go bike riding. And five minutes later, yup, I'm not thinking it. And you go back to thinking. Okay. So the idea is always to bring one's attention back to a point. And to a great extent, when you use the word hypnosis, and we talked about the JWs, hmm. hypnosis is in some way just a description of a whole style of techniques of putting the mind into a very suggestible state. Okay. So having people focus on something some idea at the expense of things that are going around. So when you're sitting in the, in the kingdom hall and you're listening to a talk, your attention is on that talk at the expense of what's going on around you. So there could be in some sense, a kind of induction to get people to focus because he's sitting for long periods of time, mm -hmm. not with distractions brings people into more focused awareness. So if you're the kind of person that if you're reading a novel, and 
you, you can get so absorbed in it that when someone walks in the room, you're not aware that they're, they came in the room because you're in, into it. You're in a slight level of hypnosis or trance. Okay. And so I think that there's similarities in, in, in result, <laughs> yep. maybe not in approach. Hmm. Uh, so, so, yes. Oh, I was say, is it the same as like when people describe like flow state and that kind of idea? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that it's, it's not, um, I mean, TM is taught in a particular way that is, you know, it's not necessary to do all the things that they do to, to, mm -hmm. to learn their technique and they have a lot of magic with it. But mm -hmm. in essence, it's just bringing one's attention to a focus, uh, to a point at the expense of other things. Mm -hmm. But what happens is the research indicates that the, the time that the person is the most suggestible is not when they're doing the meditation, it's the time afterwards. That's when the person is most open to receiving information without critically analyzing it. So when you look at groups in general, you see that they're often they'll be chanting meditation, guided imagery, intense kinds of prayer, those types of things. There's those activities. And then someone would have her a lecture or a talk. And right. that's when the person is most open to hearing these things without maybe fully uh, critically an analyzing it uh, or critical thinking sort of slackens off. That's really interesting. Uh, so it itself, you know, meditation for most, I would say most, I'm going to use the word six, I'll use it 60% of the people who practice meditation, they probably get some benefits from it. Sure. But there are, there's some good research that indicates that about 40% of the people who practice meditation develop psychological problems. Oh. And the opposite of what you would expect would happen happens. And that is that in the TM context, um, there's some research by uh, two researchers, Warbeck and Hyde, and they, it's on relaxation-induced anxiety. So instead of becoming more relaxed and less anxious, about 40% of the people develop anxiety. It's as if somehow the lid on the subconscious gets lifted and emotional flooding takes place. So some mm. people it's, it's, it's beneficial. My mom meditated until she died. And I was one of those people that, you know, was driving me nuts having, you know, sitting, I was, it wasn't the kind of relaxation that was good for me. Mm. Sure. And then there's um, the, the other thing that I was quite interested in is this yogic flying. This Because um, going back a long time in the UK, there was a, uh, a political party called the Natural Law Party. Yeah. Um, I think George Harrison was involved, actually. And yes. um, uh, yeah, I remember watching footage of... Um, so, you know, most parties have like a, a political party, a political broadcast on the TV, but they... They had lots of pictures of people doing this um, yogic flying thing, cross legs, sort of jumping up and down. It, it, what, what's the purpose of that? What's what's going on there? Sure. So, again, we have to look at um, context and time. So for the first maybe from the late 50s to 1975, this was not part of the TM organization. Um, these ideas of having supernormal powers were thought to be obstacles to one's evolution from being a human to becoming a god. Um, and then around 1975-1976, Maharishi started experimenting on these advanced courses with these certain powers. And they come from a, a, a system of philosophy called the yoga, 
and particularly from a text called the Yoga Sutras. And the Yoga Sutras is written by uh, the author. Written, the text was come from and the author. His name is Maharishi Patanjali, about 1,500 years ago. And Patanjali talks about these abilities, these supernormal powers, so to speak, which were as normal powers, things that everyone could experience, okay. um, that when someone's enlightened, the, the, these uh, these perfections, they're called cities, S-I-D-H-I, um, these perfections are manifested. Uh, so Maharishi began teaching these, uh, these techniques, that I would recall them, with the goal that they would somehow hasten our enlightenment. It would happen quickly, more quickly. And the, there was a lot of them. Flying tends to be the one that gets the most attention. Sure. But there was a lot of other ones. Um, and being able to heal yourself and navigate through the universe and uh, know the sounds and utterances of all animals. You know, that was the one that I really wanted. Uh, okay. Become omniscient, to have all kinds of, you know, you're basically you're Superman. Walk through okay. walls, become invisible. Um, but when they were announced, and so we're going to go way back to 1977, this was not hopping up and down like you saw in the, the advertisements. This was levitation. Mm. And the advertisements for it, and I have the posters, I can send them to you, were for levitation. And mm. so the professors from the university that had taken the course were PhDs, including one a Nobel Prize winner, uh, got up and said that they levitated. And they described in the literature at the time that the body would lift up move six foot forward and gently come to the ground. So when we learned, that's certainly what we expected was going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, that the ability to do that was the first stages and that soon we'd be able to fly through the air at will. That is not exactly what happened. And, and about <laughs> um, when I left the organization and actually sued them in federal court for fraud, um, they changed the name from levitation to yogic flying. And up until that time, it was secret. No one could see this. It, you, you would never allow to show anyone because to show someone would be like creating, or she said, a circus atmosphere that people should learn it on their own. But when we sued them, the group of us, we said, we're going to go public and we're going to show this to the public to show the public really what this looks like what's going on and they went to, to the judge in federal court in washington and tried to get a restraining orders to wow. stop us from doing this because we had signed a confidentiality agreements so i forgot the date and time but it was like on a monday that we had this hearing in court and uh, and it could be off on a couple of days here and five days later the, 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 it was obvious the judge wasn't going to go along with their their <laughs> restraining order. Uh, five days later, the TM movement held the largest press conference in Washington, D.C. history uh, in the uh, convention center and had the first yogic flying competition. So it went from something that was levitation secret to something that was now called yogic flying. And, and, and what you saw was what always happened is people bounce up and down like frogs, you know, pushing themselves off the ground. But that's not what we bought. Sure. So 
over time, because groups change from time to time. So from that 76, 77 in that era up until in the early 80s, it was the levitation program. Mm. And then they changed it. So most people who were involved now don't know that history. Sure. Uh, obviously, you, you you went into it thinking it was something that you wanted to do and mm. you thought it was giving you some benefit in some way. But at some point that changed. So was that... Was that the thing or was, I know your sister was also in a group which yeah. kind of got you thinking a bit differently. Yeah, so the, the, the flying was very um, appealing and it was something that was to sort of in some way objectively verify that we were evolving mm. on this path. And at one, I might just step back to learn this, these techniques of how to fly. At that time, was a three-month-long course, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, where you were, uh, uh, virtually your eyes were closed about 20, 22 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And it, we were in sort of in a secluded place um, where you didn't interact with the outside world. So to even qualify for that three-month course, I had to have... I think it was six other months, one month blocks of these types of preparation to learn these secret mm. techniques. So there's a lot set of set up for learning the, the, the technique. And at some point, Mari, she they just started doing research and they said that it, it the practice of doing this levitation in groups and large rooms covered with foam rubber um, would stop wars and conflicts. And Indeed, uh, not myself, but friends that were involved heavily in the movement were sent into war zones in Nicaragua, Mozambique, Iran, uh, I think Lebanon, to stop wars. So they actually, uh, in some sense, believed it enough that they thought that this was going to do that. And the the organization produced research showing that the conflict stopped. Mm. I... um, came to the conclusion initially i thought i was i i I saw with my own eyes people fly through the air and i experienced flying through the air now objectively i know that people don't fly (laughs) so i have a memory of an event that did not occur or a false Mm -hmm. memory but being in that very suggestible state Mm -hmm. it's part of my memory it's just an inaccurate memory Mm um so at some point, um, uh, Marishi encouraged us to move into cities and create groups. And we, I moved to Philadelphia into a, a, a very marginal area um, with a, about 16 other people. And we bought up homes to, to live sort of basically together so we could practice this t- together. Um, and I was sort of very invested in it. And I was invested in, in somebody like the JWs, you, you, you tend to be in businesses with other people who are in the practice. And I was in business with other people who were involved. Um, although I had lost, I had 125 employees, not all of them by any means were involved in TM, but the, the, the principles of the company were. Um, and we were taught that if we gave 10% of the income from the business, uh, to the organization that we would have the supportive nature the gods would make our business successful um and then uh, i got a phone call from my dad and he i have four older sisters and he said you know son i want you to come home and talk to your sister 
because she has gotten herself into a cult. Mm. And I said, Dad, I am not talking to her. She's a crazy Christian nut. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've talked to her on the phone. I know what she's like. He said, no, I think you can talk to her. And I thought, but I know I could talk to her, but I don't want to have this talk. You know, sure. I mean, in some ways I was in like, I was big. I was a good Hindu kid <laughs> and he had, you know, you know, this daughter who left Catholicism and, uh, you know, done some, you know, behaviors that he didn't think was good. Mm -hmm. So I, um, he said, look, you know, I've spot, I've supported you in everything you ever wanted to do in your life. You wanted to go to the Maharishi Yug, I, I pay for you to go. Uh, you, you wanted to learn to levitate. I paid for it. I have supported you in all your endeavors. And so what I'm asking you to do is to come talk to your sister. So I got a little bit of guilt manipulation. <laughs> so I agreed that I would come down and talk with her. And in that process of talking to her, when I got there, um, she had cut virtually all my, the members of my family off. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom, other sisters, she only talked to my oldest sister and me. And so we spent this time, um, my dad said, you need to read some of these books about the group she was involved in, which was called The Way International. Uh, it was a Bible-based group. Um, and he said, in some of the books, there's a lot of criticism of the Maharishi, so don't read those chapters. Uh, and here's uh, uh, some people that you might want to talk to on the phone before you talk to your sister who were involved in her group. So I did that. I also did read those chapters that were critical of the TM movement. Um, and in a shortened version, I convinced her to come back to Philadelphia to meet with somebody who had been a high-ranking member. And so when my sister came back to Philly with me, we sat in my living room, and this woman, her name's Lois Patton, Lois came to my door, came in to sit and talk with my sister. And so she was really talking about how this Bible-based group manipulated and how how this how behavior modification takes place how disguise techniques of hypnosis the kinds of ways of influence how does the influence take place and as i was sitting there i was going oh my god this is what they did to me <laughs> and so after about three days i gave myself permission for the first time to ask the questions that i wasn't supposed to ask so it wasn't that i left at that time mm -hmm. I gave myself permission to ask mm -hmm. the, yeah. the, the, the questions that you shouldn't ask. Isn't that what interesting? Were questions? Pardon me? <laughs> what were the questions? Well, there, I mean, there were lots of questions, but mm -hmm. um, there were there were professors at the university that were like my physics professor who was mm -hmm. no longer there. What happened to him? There would be a philosophy professor who was a great philosophy professor, then he wasn't there. <laughs> and then there were, you know, a, a physician or a psychiatrist who was taught. And then there was all of, I found out all of his books were taken out of the, the uh, bookstores and put in the, the dumpsters or the, the rubbish bins. Why? Uh, we also, I, there were people that were close aides of Maharishi that, guess what? They were members of the CIA and they'd been spies for all these years. Wow. So I think I, I really, and in my sister's group, this woman explained to my sister a very similar thing that there were people who were near the leader, 
was Dr. Dr. Warwell who were there and then not there. There were people, there was some, was some parallels. And, and mm-hmm. this woman, Lois, went out and sought out those people to find out why did they leave? What was going on? And when she did, she got a different story. Mm-hmm. So I did a very similar thing. I started tracking these people down to find out why did you leave? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was the story? And uh, I remember the guy who was a CIA agent was running a honey farm, I think in New Mexico. And he told a story about all the years he was there when they would be in large groups with Maharishi. Uh, And large groups could be 100 to 1,000 people where he would point at someone and say, go back to your controllers and tell them everything you know. And then people would look around, you're a CIA agent. Well, (laughs) Well, now we don't want to talk to that person because they're a CIA agent. So they were discredited you know, proactively as a source of information. So I wanted to talk to those people. And, and when I talked to them, the, the guy said, yeah, I, I believe, Marishi, that these were CIA agents until the day I was a CIA agent. <laughs> and then I went, oh, maybe these other people weren't CIA agents. So that was the kind of thing that had I done or anyone knew I did, I wouldn't have been able to advance in, in the organizational structure. Mm. And there were things that, because I lived in a TM community, um, they're terraced houses, like an out of dead end, a cul-de-sac. I got turned in for burning the wrong brand of incense that was associated with a different teacher. I mean, there was just like, Mm. there was all kinds of little things that could get you in trouble. Um, that, that indicated that you were doing things that were not approved. You're, so you're, this, you're, this sort of high control environment started to uh, wear on you, I suppose. So the environment, it's as if there was a time when there was a high control environment, but one had internalized those rules. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. instead of being in an environment which was a totalistic environment, you became like an island of totalism floating mm-hmm. out in society where you did it to yourself. You knew what you should read. Pavlovian responses. Yeah. You knew what you could read and not read. You knew what was appropriate and what was not appropriate. And so to read a different translation of a particular scripture that Maharishi had translated was not acceptable. And I wanted to start doing that. And that's the path that I went on to lead that led me out. So in a sense, the first intervention I did occurred while I was in the group. And that intervention of getting my sister out, which I structured, got my, myself out. Uh, from there, I went on a very large course of 8,000 people uh, in Iowa for three weeks where people were doing this flying. And it was there that, you know, I was sitting in rooms with Maharishi and uh, it just didn't seem to be the magic that was once there. <laughs> so I, I you know, realized that, you know, they, were, they lied to me. And, you know, many parts of this were okay. In fact, some of the academics, I think, were good. Um, So I can't say that the whole experience is bad. But I I had friends who jumped through windows, people who jumped off buildings, who went crazy. You know, a lot of of, not nice things happened. So I asked for my money back for the flying course, for the levitation course. And they refused. Basically, it came back to the sewers if you want your money back. And Mm. so, well, I did. (laughs) And uh, uh, so part of that process of suing the TM organization and Maharishi and the university 
uh, for fraud and for negligence, because these mm. these courses had, can do psychological damage, mm. I thought, to some mm. people. Um, I, uh, our attorney explained that I'm a single practitioner and we were going up against an organization that at that time was worth about three and a half billion dollars, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which was going to have some of the finest law, mm-hmm. you know, lawyers in the world. And that I was going to have to convince a jury of my peers that this white kid <laughs> from mm-hmm. an upper middle class family who was college educated, mm-hmm that I believe that it was reasonable to think I could levitate. (laughs) And he said, you know, you better, you're going to have to convince them. And so he recommended that we talk to Dr. Margaret Margaret Singer and Jolly West and some of these people who would become our experts Mm -hmm. um, to learn how to articulate how it is that we thought that this was, you know, reasonable. And we went to some conferences of the Cult Awareness Network and organizations, the predecessors of ICSA, International Cultic Studies Association. Mm -hmm. And at those conferences, the first one, I remember being in a big room. Um, There might have been 50, 80 people who were former members of groups. And people went around the room telling their stories. And their stories seemed like my story. Yeah. That's what sort of really propelled Mm -hmm. me out of the organization. Mm-hmm. That that's really interesting, and and it's it struck us really how, you know, we've talked to obviously many different people on this podcast, and um, whilst yeah, there are obviously differences that mm. there are so many similarities with these disparate groups. So that's yeah, that's fascinating. In terms of, um, you know, cause you're talking about leaving these sort of groups and um, how you uh, sort of you know um, helped your sister as well. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind talk, sort of talking about? the ethics of helping someone leave when they're not, they still believe, do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. cause that one's a bit tricky, I suppose. No wonder. It certainly is, is very tricky. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, when I work with families who contact me about their loved ones involved, mm-hmm. part of our assessment and preparation deals a lot with the ethics of this okay. because um, when you are, you, someone's in a group that maybe you think is uh, not the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. and you want to intervene, you're interfering with someone's life without their permission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you're interfering with someone's life without their permission, you better have some good reasons why. And I think that they should be more than just, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, you've given up your education. You could have been at Harvard and mm. you, know, you only have a BA. I don't, for me, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you, you, I think you should have some good reasons. Mm. I don't think it's ethical for me to um, approach someone and, and try to encourage them to leave a group. So I live in you know, Philadelphia and I have many neighbors and friends who are in groups. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not ethical for me to say, hey, you know, what you're involved in mm-hmm. <laughs> is, pro- is a problem because I'm not there on the other side. You know, so if I unhook the belief system that they're involved in or deconstruct what they, they've attached themselves to. And I'm not there on the other side to, to help them recover. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. If I haven't created a safe space for them to come to, that I haven't created, you know, all of those things that I think that are necessary, that would be highly unethical on my part mm-hmm. to interfere with a, a neighbor or stranger's life. Mm-hmm. I think that a family has a different set of ethics and a different set of rights. Um, so I think that you would have a, a, a this is my own, you know, yeah. Uh, dealing with ethics is that you might have the right to do things to interfere with your daughter's life or your mm-hmm. children's mm-hmm. life um, because they're your family. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think that I could help you in doing this in, a, in the most ethical, dignified, respectful way that, that is going to alienate and is going to create a sort of a, a glide path back to a, a safe place. But I wouldn't want to intervene with someone who, if they left, they were left out on their own or in a, in a, a horribly ab- abusive situation. Sure. So ethics are an issue. And I mm. think that uh, the idea of just being all groups are bad and all groups, are, you know, we have to get everyone out. I, I am not, at one point I was when I was young, mm. I'm not a cult fighter. Mm. Um, I don't. I, I was <laughs> when I was in my 20s and, and left the group. But you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And so I don't think I'm a cult fighter anymore. I, I only think about individuals. How, can, how is this group affecting this person mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that may be harmful for them? And can, for that person, can we help them evaluate? So I don't know if that answers your question. Or- no, it, do, it does. It like opens up a bit because it is something that, I've I've wondered about because it's like yeah you um, you want to help someone if you see that they're in a bad situation but you yeah it's kind of like um you don't want to do the same things that have been done to them I guess to get them out sort of thing yeah I don't think it's I don't think we want to do that mm. I, I you know I I look at you know the research is not perfect. Um, because when we're dealing with social science, we're not dealing with like hard science. Mm-hmm. But, but if we cobble together the research that's been done, most people who affiliate with uh, manipulative systems leave them mm. and they leave them on their own. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's been estimated up to 90% of the people who affiliate with these manipulative systems leave them. Mm-hmm. And if you even look at the larger groups, uh, their memberships are not that large. So their, mm. their, 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 their ability to attract people and mm. hold them is not magic. I mean, it's mm. not mm-hmm. like one for one. Yeah. Sure. What we don't know is, do people leave after a, a day, week, month, or 50 years? We don't know that. We just know that most people leave. Yeah. So I think that if we know that most people leave, can we create an environment on the outside that is safe, uh, that w- would be nurturing, <laughs> that is there for that person who makes that decision to leave. Mm-hmm. And I especially think about this with people in your situation who are either born and raised or multi-generational. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, it was many years ago, I, I was working with a, a group that pretty, a group that I don't particularly like, um, that d- d- disciplines children very they hit them in ways that I think that, sure. are, that I would not do to my children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
the the government and uh, in, in, in the state of, of Vermont had taken the children away from the group at one time, but they ended up going having to give them back. It was mm-hmm. ruled by the courts that this wasn't acceptable. Mm-hmm. So the kids are going to get beaten. Uh, mm-hmm. The kids are going to be disciplined in a, in a stern way. Mm-hmm. So the question, I, I was working with a family one time, and they were trying to get their daughter and their grandkids out. And my assessment was it wasn't going to happen quickly, but that it would be important for their grandchildren to have a relationship with them. And what would it take to have a relationship with your grandkids yeah. and not so that they, they have somebody on the outside to come out to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So if you go and see them being hit and beaten and you're you know giving a hard time to the group, what you're doing to our grandkids, we know the courts are not going to take them away from them. So mm-hmm. let, let's just stipulate that that's going to happen as, as, as much as it hurts you to see it. But if those grandkids can know you, when they get of age, when biology kicks in mm. and they go in puberty and they don't like it anymore, <laughs> do they know somebody on the outside? And indeed yeah. what happened in, in this particular case I'm thinking about, when the, the first grandchild turned about 14, he ran away. And where did he run to? Mm. His grandparents. Yeah. Because okay. he knew them. Had they not known them, he wouldn't have a place to go to. Yeah. And his siblings have followed him. Yeah, that's interesting. We um, we interviewed um, Alexandra Stein, mm-hmm. um, and she talks in her book about the need to have uh, you know some other attachment to go to, essentially. Yeah. Um, and that's a really important element in a lot of these exits is having another another friend. It could be a family member. Some some way to to find yeah. your way out, and that that can really help. So yes, I, I guess that's, yeah. but that must be very difficult. Um, I mean, one of the questions I was going to ask you was about advice for, I know it's every case is different and it's impossible to give generalized advice, but um, a lot of our listeners will have family members who are still members of high control groups. Some of them might be shunned by their family. Um, others might, you know, have some contact with them. Um, I, it's an unfair question, but how? What's the best way of thinking about how to help those people? Yeah, I, I, I think that oh, I just don't uh, acknowledge Alex's work mm. uh, with attachment, and I think that is spot on. Yeah, that you, ha- you want to create an environment that they, people can attach to; they're healthy. Mm. Um, so, from an you know her, the research point of view, I'm in t- total agreement with that. Yeah, um, I tend to try to get families to not look at the similarities that they see with other groups and almost everything that's written, people see the similarities, Mm -hmm. but to look at the differences, how is your loved one's situation different than other people's? Because I think it's in the differences where you make progress, not in the similarities. Mm -hmm. I think that when some, once someone's left, then the similarities kick in, but trying to see how, what is their unique relationship with this leader group idea? Because there are lots of different reasons why people join. There's a lot of reasons why people stay and they're very different. And there's a lot of pe- reasons why people leave. I know in my own experience that U.S. strangers could have gotten me out of the group I was involved in and just by talking to me. And two weeks later, we could have brought an army in and I wouldn't have moved. 
all you had to know was what was going on in my head because there were many times that I was miserable. I hated it. And if you knew when I was miserable, <laughs> then you could strike when the ire was hot. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't know what's going on in my head, hmm. you don't know what I'm thinking, that all of the, the times that we communicate, it's adversarial. You're always trying to tell me what's wrong with what I'm involved yeah. in. Yeah. Then why would I? I mean, it doesn't mean I wouldn't want to spend time with you, but do I really want to do that? And it's a really interesting point. So it, this is um, this is a, an approach that is is more about being inquisitive, I guess. Is it uh, about yeah. what the person is thinking and feeling and getting them to open up about it? I think I think that it's the start at a place of what I would call benign curiosity. Yeah, um, be interested have interest but not necessarily being interested it's yeah. just this fine line of curiosity that is 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 makes people feel comfortable i know that when i uh, would go visit my family and i have lots of nephews and nieces they would say things like at thanksgiving hey uncle pat do you levitate mm -hmm. and it's like i really didn't want to have to explain that I didn't mm. want to have that conversation. I just sort of wanted to hang out. Yeah. Uh, there's times that I wanted to explain it, but you had to be able to read me. Um, so I think that knowing what's going on in someone's head is so important. And if you are savable, if your soul is savable, if I believe that I can bring you along, mm. then I'm more likely to communicate with you. Mm. But when you establish that you're not savable, <laughs> then mm. it's a different story. Yeah. And I think that what we're talking about is in some ways being savable. And that would be just being interested, having interest. So would you apply this same, um, I guess you would, to like um, some of these conspiracy theory um, groups or not even groups, but, but ways of thinking Um I had an experience with this a few years ago, and um, I think I absolutely uh, messed it up completely, really. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, first of all, I tried to explain, you know, the logic of why this person's view was, was ridiculous. And actually, you know, it's not like this, it's like this. Mm -hmm. And then he kept contacting me over and over and over again. And I just got really angry with him for for doing it, and um, basically told him not to not to do it anymore. And that's it. You know, I don't have any contact with him anymore. So I've completely screwed that up, really, haven't I? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, it, it screwed it up, not screwed it up. I don't know if I would go that. I mean, it depends upon the relationship. If it was that yeah. with your daughter and she cut you off, then it might be. I might say, well, maybe you went too far. But sure. if this is just somebody that you know, you don't have that kind of relationship with, well, you don't have to be on your A game all the time. You're a human. Sure. Now, yeah. if you're an interventionist <laughs> and it's your job to do this, well, then you mm. should be on your A game okay. <laughs> you, yeah. and, and have the patience and all of those things that, you know, it's like therapy. You go to therapy and the therapist is, uh, they behave in a particular way. You know, but that doesn't mean when they go home and they're with their family, they're behaving like they are when you're in the therapy room, right? You know, it's a yeah. they're 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 themselves. Uh, so yeah, I I wouldn't beat oneself up over that. But it, for me, 
I think that the thing that drives look, look there are lots of people reasons different reasons, and we could go through why people join Stanley, many many different reasons that are very different. But I think that at the basis for many people, they have had an internal experience, something inside uh, that is profound and that they use as their standard, their gauge, their measure of what's accurate and inaccurate. So by internal experience, I'm talking about things that you can't see. So when I learned to levitate, and on this long course, at some point I was meditating and I felt bolts of lightning going up and down in my spine. Now you couldn't see that, but I felt that. Mm-hmm. So it's an internal experience in some way, like falling in love. So you, you walk into a, a club, you see someone you're attracted to all kinds of, you know, hormones are released. This is not rational. This is, an, this is emotional. This is a feeling. And so I think that good manipulative systems are very good at inducing these internal experiences. And when you take the measure, the standard, the yardstick, the way of of determining what is accurate or inaccurate as a feeling, then the arguments don't hold much water Mm -hmm. because it's the feeling. I know it's right. There's a text that I often use in our work, and, and it's a text on hypnosis, and it's, it's, it's really a training text for physicians who uh, do surgery with people under, without anesthesia. Right. And uh, it, there's a line in it that says, the induction of hypnosis is the induction of conviction. The induction of hypnosis is the induction of conviction, of absolute knowingness. So the way you know your mother is your mother, your father is your father, your brother is your brother, is not intellectual. Uh, certainly, we can look at our mom and say, "Okay, I she born, I know I was born, sure. you know, fifty eight years ago. My parents this did a certain procreative act. <laughs> she helped me. I mean, none of that happens. You just know that's my mom. Yeah. It's a sense of knowing, and I think that good, good." effective manipulative systems induce that sense in people and mm. get us to shift our standard to that feeling as the way of knowing it's real or not real. So often hitting people with intellectual, although it does work, um, intellectual ex- reasons, if they're using this feeling as the way of, of judging, mm. this stuff doesn't make a difference. Mm. The intellectual stuff makes a difference after someone's left. Yeah. So I think that when in our work, we try to first address those feelings, what brings those about? So the person has an understanding of this is why I feel connected. And then this is why I can make excuses for the misbehaviors of the group. So if you're in the JWs and there's sexual abuse of children, but you know, you know, this is the way you're going to get off the planet. This is the way that you're going to, you're going to paradise. Well, then, you know, and one can make intellectual excuses for these things. When you don't longer have that emotional connection to the group, then you can look at those behaviors and say, no, that's completely not acceptable. Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. That really is, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not trying to be like black and white here. I, I mean, I'm yeah. trying to make some distinctions to for, for exploring, but it, that's how I look at things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's really, really, really helpful, actually. Um, so I was, I was um, obviously going to talk about some of the work that you're doing currently. Um, you, you're, mm-hmm. you're very active on on the Cult 101 stuff, and you also obviously do your, um, your, your work as a counselor or a um, 
a consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, what's uh, tell me a little bit about what you do, and um, you know what what your what your work is that you're most passionate about, and, and what you yeah. what you're doing at the moment. So I, I think that um, if I could sum it up, the thing that's my most passionate about is having families stay connected and and developing those relationships almost at any cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that that's the most important thing is that we have people who love us mm-hmm. and that we know it and that they're there and that every time we talk to them, it's a better experience than not. And that usually doesn't involve talking about what, what people believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they want to talk about it, it's okay. <laughs> so I, I always reflect back on my own father and how, you know, he, when I would come home for a holiday, he would reserve three days to listen to what I had to say. <laughs> and he would just listen and I would go on and on and on and espouse on how the universe worked. I was a pompous ass, but, uh, and then when it would, you know, I'd go to the close to get him to learn to meditate. He would come up with things like, you know, son, what you love doing in life is meditating. And I'm so happy for you. What I love in life is riding horses and if i had 10 extra minutes in a day i'd get on the horse and i'd go ride because that's what makes me happy and mm. i'm so glad that you have something that makes you happy mm. that's not making me wrong mm. it's making it's like he was skilled in mm. showing that we all are different and you can do what you do and i'm not going to make you wrong you want to make me wrong, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to find a way of diverting. So I think that our my work mostly is about trying to keep helping families stay connected mm. and helping people who've been in these systems recover from it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've been in this 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 field for a long time, and over those years, over those 38 years different approaches you know I've, I've done there was a time where you know i thought that one more minute underneath influence was the worst thing on earth mm. i don't believe that mm. um I, I thought that being involved in any group was a horrible thing i don't believe that now um i think that for some people maybe it's better than it's a better life than you mm. know living on the street or or or, or in the, the existence where they came from sure. so uh, i'm not going to judge those in those ways. Hmm. Um, so that's really been the, the focus of my work. I worked for the International Cultic Studies Association for 23 years and, uh, you know, also doing intervention work, running workshops for families and for former members, trying to help people look at these in, in maybe more in different ways than just this monolithic mind controlled model, uh, that there are lots of different ways of looking at it. Because ultimately, the, the models that exist, I think, are, have, are their usefulness. And so you read a book and you find out there's this model of Lipton, there's Model Singer, there's all kinds of models. Mm-hmm. I, but I think that what we try to do, and my passion, is to try to figure out, by doing thorough assessments, what pieces of what models, what concepts from what models would be applicable to this person. Mm-hmm rather than trying to impose models on people. So, you know, we have all these tools, we have all this research that people have done and created different models, concepts, um, but they're not all applicable. 
and and we, I don't want to shove them in, but the, but there are parts of them that mm. can be applicable. They may yeah. be completely applicable. Yeah. So that's really my focus uh, in terms of the the cult news one hundred and one and the newsletter that we send out. I had a friend over the other day that I haven't seen in many years who used to do the work I do. And he, he, he said, you know, I really enjoy reading it because you bring out, you have articles that are sometimes pro for groups. You have different perspectives. And I mm. just put in the things that I find interesting, mm. um, that it's not just everything is bad, <laughs> that I, I think that there's just all kinds of different ways of looking at this group kind of experience. And that, if you give families and people lots of different tools, then you, you have a lot more in your arsenal, so to speak, that you can choose from. We mm. don't have to, you know, stick to this rigid way of looking at it. So the newsletter really, I guess the passion about it is just what those are the things that I find interesting in any one day. Uh, and uh, that's what goes out. Um, and I try, and I think that, you know, the common thing that I've always hear from families is how come there's nothing in the news? And I, and I, uh, you know, for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, every day there are 50 articles and I've got to choose three little clips out of them. And the diversity of experiences from political systems to terrorist systems to groups that require people to become trans, uh, the people, I mean, they're all different approach kinds of groups that do all different kinds of things. And I think that if we look at this vast difference that we can see ourselves in them. So in some way, it's like, you know, we're trying to provide a Rorschach ink blot. <laughs> and in that Rorschach ink blot of ideas, we can see ourselves in them. Well, it's incredibly sense. comprehensive. It's a great um, resource for anybody that's interested in the subject. Um, obviously, we'll put a link on our uh, show notes for people to, um, yeah. to go to the website and subscribe if they, if they want to. Um, yeah. It's really, really useful. Okay. Celine, your, um, your question. Yeah, yeah, my um, my finishing like is very like uh pop poppy question. Um, yeah. but basically, I just was thinking about it afterwards because it made me think of when we spoke to Chris French, um, who was at my uni. He did about um, he does um a non anomalistic psychology. Mm-hmm. Basically, as he describes it, why people are interested in weird shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, um. And I, one of the questions I asked him was, um, what does he think of like Darren Brown and all of the shenanigans he pulls with his hypnosis and ethics? And I was just like, oh, I should ask you this question. Um, what do you think? <laughs> you know, I, he has his shtick, you know, yeah. he's got his shtick. <laughs> and for, I think a lot of people, it's a shtick. It's like watching, you know, a movie, oh. a, a comedian, it's something like that, something they can play with. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's those people who get stuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of shtick out there. And mm-hmm. in groups, in a way, are like theater. And some for, and theater that is abusive and theater that's interesting. It, eh. But when we finish seeing the play, we leave. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when we don't leave (laughs) because this toxic cocktail is created that for a particular individual at a particular point in their life and time, Mm. it fits, it makes sense. It brings Mm. together disparate issues that one has Mm. and they connect with it. So not so much in, you know, other than in a very general way, I mean, 
look, it's shtick to me. It's not very good <laughs> shtick, but it's shtick. Uh, it, it's what it is. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in some sense, most religion and, and, and things are theater. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a quality of it that's theater, mm-hmm. and there's good theater and there's not good theater. I mean, mm-hmm. I was raised Catholic and uh, from an Irish Catholic family and, you know, uh, I'm not a particularly religious person, but, you know, if one went to the Catholic church and uh, I have a bunch of friends who are priests who do it well, <laughs> they do the mass well, their homilies are perfect, their rhythm of clicking the incense, the, the, the environment that they set up, it, it is a ride. You know, from when someone comes in for that 45 minutes, one goes back to times, it brings people back to times very early in their life when things were simple, you know, mm-hmm. because those same rhythms and sounds and smells and, and cadence are things that, you know, I was wired with from being an infant. So it sort of brings you back to a very simple form of awareness that regardless of if I believe it or not, I mean, I absolutely don't believe it, but it, it, it makes it's, it brings some sense of peace. And then you go and you go to somebody else who's not doing it well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, um, the theater of it is not what, what done well. And it's, or even the, the message that's being sent is abrasive. Well, it doesn't do that for me. Mm-hmm. And so I, in that kind of way, I think that, you know, Darren Brown and the likes of these people, eh, they, they have things that for some people make meaning, have bring meaning. I think, I think they also demonstrate some of the techniques in a very kind of almost like a caricature way that helps um, helps us to sort of identify some of these tactics and techniques that some of the um, uh, those groups that keep you dragged in. I like that metaphor of, you know, after the after the theatre is finished, you can leave, but sometimes you don't leave. And that's that's uh, I guess that's a great alternative definition of a of some sort of um, coercive group in that you're, you're yeah. somehow you're, you're trapped within that performance. I, I kind of like that as a, the, as a there, metaphor. There's another metaphor that um, a colleague, Joseph Hart and Joseph Kelly, we, we often use, hmm. and that is of rites of passage that most traditional cultures have rites of passage that we go through. Yeah. So if I think of African cultures, there might be a, a point at which a young man, when he turns 13, is circumcised. And that doesn't sound like fun to me. But <laughs> th- there is, you know, they may go yeah. off into the woods for five, I'm making this up, five days, and there's drumming, and there's all of this buildup where someone is sort of brought into an altered state for this transformation to take place. And one goes through now that they're a man or they're, they've reached a rite of passage. And I think that for many groups, the, 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 the groups have take people on rites of passage, but they never let them pass through the rite of passage. Mm. So they're eternally stuck in that rites of passage hmm. because those techniques that are used to bring people through being circumcised when you're 13 without anesthesia, those techniques are effective, mm. but they have a place. Mm. They have a place in time. They have a purpose. When we take them out of their context and we apply them to other people, then they can get stuck in that eternally in that rite of passage mm. and they never finish it. And uh, I think that's what happens with a lot of groups. That's really interesting. You get stuck. You get stuck. Same thing as the theater. Yeah, yeah, that's that's brilliant. Um, well, um, I, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today, uh, Pat. That's been 
Absolutely fantastic and, and such an interesting voice, such an interesting experience. We haven't talked to anybody like you before, so <laughs> that's fantastic. We really appreciated it. Thank you it's so much pleasure. for your time. Is is there anything that you want to um, uh, you're doing that you want to promote or that you want us to talk about? No, I mean, not particularly. I, I, you know, the, the, most of the work that I've done has been associated with the International Cultic Studies Association. Yeah. They're yeah. the academics who try to bring some kind of standards to these things. And I think that a lot of the ideas that I have come from the work of Dr. Langoni and others in, in these fields who have tried to bring a little bit of science to this. Um, yeah. And what does science tell us? And so that's what, to some degree, I, I try to do and, and to move away from the emotion of mm. fighting. Sure. Um, and so... Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're always here to help people. We try to put on events that are, you know, anyone can access. Um, and, but I don't really have anything to particularly promote. Okay. Okay. Well, that's helping families come together. I, I mean, I recognize what you're doing. I think it's, it's fantastic. Um, you know, in our own little way, we want to create a, a space where people can explore different, questions and ideas that, that for the first time they're they're coming to terms with so we we think of ourselves i think on this podcast not as as a way to get people out but once people are out of these groups okay i've got this big wide world now i've got to make up my mind about and i don't know what i think about it all so that's really the idea of of the podcast so i think you know you've you've talked about so much of that today i think that that's a really important thing and that the, how people um conceptualize and frame their experiences changes over time. Mm. Uh, yeah. Just what, what I know we're probably going long. Uh, mm. Many years ago at the University of Madrid, uh, I did a, a workshop with Joe Kelly. And uh, we, it was a former member, so it was probably three former members in the room. And I was curious about this term cult and its usefulness. Mm. And so we started this particular session out with a question. And the question was, is the word term cult necessary to describe your experience or is it what dr lifton would call a thought terminating cliche <laughs> yes so i was really like what, what is it i mean i'm not critical of the term per se and the room divided into three groups of people and there was those people that had left rather recently and that when they heard that term they had something they could coalesce around it made sense. It brought these disparate experiences together. And there were so, there was one woman who had been out of the group for 20 years. And she went, well, it's not so useful for me anymore. But they conceptualized it differently. And this also, I've conceptualized my experience differently. At one time, I was like I was in a cult. And now I look at it that I was in a manipulative system. I learned things that had problems. Like, there's a lot more nuance in it. And I think that if, I think that, your work and, and bringing different perspectives, I think can help people have a more nuanced perspective on their own experience rather than pigeonholing it into one box. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely a subject we've talked about quite a lot, you know, the, the term and, and other, and other terms. Yeah. It's, um, it's ripe for lots more, uh, research and lots more yeah. talking and exploring. So, uh, that's, that's, we're going to just continue to do that. And, Great. and, um, it's been been fantastic to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you. 
and um yeah hopefully we'll keep in touch uh, tap okay. up your your friend um joe kelly because okay. uh, we, we want to talk to him as well if we can okay. um because we want to obviously talk to all the voices really in this space yeah. so. yes yes different express uh, different ex- experience and uh, different sure. perspective great mm. all right well thank Just you very right. much it's been You're absolutely welcome. brilliant talking to you today awesome. thank all you. right cheers what should i think about is an evil sheep production